Hello everyone, welcome to Knox Bedtime Stories. I'm your friend Joey, here with another episode to help you relax, feel safe, and fall asleep. It's about 11pm here. I hope you all had a great day today, and if not, I hope I'm able to bring you comfort in your time of need. It has been a very difficult two months for myself, If you would like to know what happened, the story is posted to the public on my Patreon page. But my job is to lift your spirits at bedtime and ensure that you get the best night's sleep possible, so I won't speak about it here. If this is your first time here, welcome to the Knox family. I hope I'm able to bring you some calm, comfort, and a good night's sleep. From here on out, nothing exists except you, me, this beautiful fireplace, and the bed, couch, or floor you're laying on. I have a terrific story for you tonight called The Hall of Fantasy, and I even went the extra mile and got new background music for this story, which is extremely soothing. Rather than read a good news story to start off, which most of you skip anyway, and make me a sad panda. I do get analytics, you know, so I can see what gets skipped. I'm going to give you a few sleep tips that should aid you in falling asleep faster. Tip number one, find an agreeable temperature. You don't want your bedroom temperature to be a distraction by feeling too hot or too cold. The ideal temperature can vary based on the individual, but most research supports sleeping in a cooler room that is around 65 degrees. Tip number two. I recently implemented this one myself and it's been helpful. Introduce pleasant aromas. A light scent that you can find calming can help ease you into sleep. Essential oils with natural aromas such as lavender can provide a soothing and fresh smell for your bedroom. Lavender has also been shown in studies to lower stress, anxiety, and depression. I accomplished this simply and cheaply. If you go to Amazon.com, look up Airwick Essential Oils Lavender Plugin. It's only $3 and makes your room smell like you're sleeping in a lavender field. It comes with both the warmer and the oil insert, so you can't beat it for 3 bucks. Make sure you eliminate blue light from your room. And most of all, listen to me on Knox Bedtime Stories. I'm always here to comfort you. Before I get to tonight's story... I want to thank my Patreon patrons for sticking with me through thick and thin, and being there when I need them most. I would like to thank Nikki Gore Green for increasing her pledge, as well as Liz James for increasing hers. I have a lot of bills coming up on August 1st to keep the podcast going for another year, so every dollar helps. If you're not a patron and would like to become one, and get things like extra episodes, a thank you, your name added at KnoxBedtimeStories.com. You can do so at KnoxBedtimeStories.com and clicking on the Join Patreon link or 
patreon.com forward slash Knox Bedtime Stories. I'm going to try and post the second episode of Glinda of Oz before the end of the week, and then the rest of the book will be moved to Patreon, and will be available to all patrons whether you donated a dollar or a million dollars. That's to make up for the mental health struggles I've been going through the last few months. I have to record as many stories as I can before the 4th of July. I've already had issues with people lighting off fireworks while I'm recording and it's a massive pain in the ass. Okay, now let's get into bed. Say to yourself, my bedroom is a place of peace and relaxation. When I enter this room and crawl into bed at night, today's thoughts naturally begin to soften. My burden lightens and sleep is coming. Let's get to tonight's story, The Hall of Fantasy, set to new sleep-inducing music and this beautiful fireplace. If you're not already laying down, please do so in whatever way is comfortable. And let's begin. It has happened to me on various occasions to find myself in a certain edifice which would appear to have some of the characteristics of a public exchange. Its interior is a spacious hall with a pavement of white marble. Overhead is a lofty dome supported by long rows of pillars of fantastic architecture. The idea of which was probably taken from the Moorish ruins of the Alhambra or perhaps from the enchanted edifice in the Arabian Tales. The windows of this hall have a breadth and grandeur of design and an elaborateness of workmanship that have nowhere been equaled except in the Gothic cathedrals of the Old World. Like their prototypes too, they admit the light of heaven only through stained and pictured glass thus filling the hall with many colored radiance and painting, its marbled floor with beautiful or grotesque designs, so that its inmate's breath, as it were, a visionary atmosphere, and tread upon the fantasies of poetic minds. These peculiarities combining a wilder mixture of styles than even an American architect usually recognizes as allowable. Grecian, Gothic, Oriental, and nondescript cause the whole edifice to give the impression of a dream, which might be dissipated and shattered to fragments by merely stamping the foot upon the pavement. Yet, with such modifications and repairs as successive ages demand, The Hall of Fantasy is likely to endure longer than the most substantial structure that ever cumbered the earth. It is not at all times that one can gain admittance into this edifice, although most persons enter it at some period or other in their lives. If not in their waking moments, then by the universal passport of a dream. At my last visit, I wandered thither, 
unaware while my mind was busy with an idle tale, and was startled by the throng of people who seemed suddenly to rise up around me. Bless me, where am I, cried I, with but a dim recognition of the place. You were in a spot, said a friend, who chanced to be near at hand, which occupies in the world of the fancy the same position which the Bourse, the Rialto, and the Exchange do in the commercial world. All who have affairs in that mystic region, which lies above, below, or beyond the actual, may here meet and take over the business of their dreams. It is a noble hall, observed I. Yes, he replied. Yet we see but a small portion of the edifice. In its upper stories are said to be apartments, where the inhabitants of earth may hold converse with those of the moon, and beneath our feet are gloomy cells, which communicate with the infernal regions, and where monsters and chimeras are kept in confinement and fed with all unwholesomeness. In niches and on pedestals, Around about the hall stood the statues or busts of men, who in every age have been rulers and demigods in the realms of imagination and its kindred regions. The grand old countenance of Homer, the shrunken and decrepit form but vivid face of Aesop, the dark presence of Dante, the wild Ariosto, Rabelais's smile of deep wrought mirth, the profound pathetic humor of Cervantes, the all glorious Shakespeare, Spencer, meet guest for an allegoric structure, the severe divinity of Milton and Bunyan, molded of homeliest clay, but instinct with celestial fire, were those that chiefly attracted my eye. Fielding Richardson and Scott occupied conspicuous pedestals. In an obscure and shadowy niche was deposited the bust of our countryman, the author of Arthur Mervyn. Besides these indestructible memorials of real genius, remarked my companion, each century has erected statues of its own ephemeral favorites in wood. I observe a few crumbling relics of such, said I, but ever and anon, I suppose, oblivion comes with her huge broom and sweeps them all from the marble floor. But such will never be the fate of this fine statue of Goth, nor of that next to it, Emanuel Swedesborg, said he. Were ever two men of transcendent imagination more unlike? In the center of the hall springs an ornamental fountain, the water of which continually throws itself into new shapes and snatches the most diversified lines from the stained atmosphere around. It is impossible to conceive what a strange vivacity is imparted to the scene by the magic dance of the fountain with its endless transformations in which the imaginative beholder may discern from what form he will. 
The water is supposed by some to flow from the same source as the Castalian Spring and is extolled by others as uniting the virtues of the Fountain of Youth with those of many other enchanted wells long celebrated in tale and song. Having never tasted it, I can bear no testimony to its quality. Did you ever drink this water? I inquired of my friend. A few sips now and then, answered he. But there are men here who make it their constant beverage, or at least have the credit of doing so. In some instances, it is known to have intoxicating qualities. Pray, let us look at these water drinkers, said I. So we passed among the fantastic pillars, till we came to a spot where a number of persons were clustered together in the light of one of the great stained windows, which seemed to glorify the whole group as well as the marble that they trod on. Most of them were men of broad foreheads, meditative countenances, and thoughtful inward eyes. Yet it required but a trifle to summon up mirth, peeping out from the very midst of grave and lofty musings. Some strode about or leaned against the pillars of the hall, alone and in silence. Their faces were a rapt expression, as if sweet music were in the air around them, or as if their inmost souls were about to float away in song. One or two perhaps stole a glance at the bystanders to watch if their poetic absorption were observed. Others stood taking in groups with a liveliness of expression, a ready smile, and a light intellectual laughter, which showed how rapidly the shafts of wit were glancing and fro among them. A few held higher converse, which caused their calm and melancholy souls to beam moonlight from their eyes. As I lingered near them, for I felt an inward attraction towards these men, as if the sympathy of feeling, if not of genius, had united me to their order. My friend mentioned several of their names. The world has likewise heard those names, with some of it has been familiar for years, and others are daily making their way deeper into the universal heart. Thank heaven, observed I to my companion, as we pass to another part of the hall. We have done with this techy, wayward, shy, proud, unreasonable set of laurel gatherers. I love them in their works, but have little desire to meet them elsewhere. You have adopted all old prejudice, I see, replied my friend, who was familiar with most of these worthies being himself a student of poetry, and not without the poetic flame. But so far as my experience goes, men of genius are fairly gifted with the social qualities, and in this age, there appears to be a fellow feeling among them which had not heretofore been developed. As men, 
They ask nothing better than to be on equal terms with their fellow men. And as authors, they have thrown aside their proverbial jealousy and acknowledge a generous brotherhood. The world does not think so, answered I. An author is received in general society pretty much as we honest citizens are in the Hall of Fantasy. We gaze at him as if he had no business among us and question whether he is fit for any of our pursuits. Then it is a very foolish question, said he. Now here are a class of men whom we may daily meet on change. Yet what poet in the hall is more full of fancy than the sagest of them? He pointed to a number of persons who manifest as the fact was would have been deemed it an insult to be told that they stood in the hall of fantasy. Their visages were traced into wrinkles and furrows, each of which seemed the record of some actual experience in life. Their eyes had the shrewd calculating glance which detects so quickly and so surely all that it concerns a man of business to know about the characters and purposes of his fellow men. Judging them as they stood, they might be honored and trusted members of the Chamber of Commerce who had found the genuine secret of wealth and whose sagacity gave them the command of fortune. There was a character of detail and matter of fact in their talk which concealed the extravagance of its purport insomuch that the wildest schemes had the aspect of everyday realities. Thus, the listener was not startled at the idea of cities to be built as, by magic, in the heart of pathless forests and of streets to be laid out where now the sea was tossing and of mighty rivers to be stayed in their courses in order to turn the machinery of a cotton mill. It was only by an effort and scarcely then that the mind convinced itself that such speculations were as much matter of fantasy as the old dream of El Dorado, or as Mammon's Cave, or any other vision of gold ever conjured up by the imagination of needy poet or romantic adventurer. Upon my word, said I, it is dangerous to listen to such dreamers as these. Their madness is contagious. Yes, said my friend, because they mistake the Hall of Fantasy for actual brick and mortar, and its purple atmosphere for unsophisticated sunshine. But the poet knows his whereabout, and therefore is less likely to make a fool of himself in real life. Here again, observed I, as we advanced a little farther, we see another order of dreamers, peculiarly characteristic, too, of the genius of our country. These were the inventors of fantastic machines. Models of their contrivances were placed against some of the pillars of the hall and afforded good emblems of the result generally to be anticipated from an attempt to reduce daydreams to practice. 
The analogy may hold in morals as well as physics. For instance, here was the model of a railroad through the air and a tunnel under the sea. Here was a machine, stolen I believe, for the distillation of heat from moonshine, and another for the condensation of morning mist into square blocks of granite, wherewith it was proposed to rebuild the entire hall of fantasy. One man exhibited a sort of lens whereby he had succeeded in making sunshine out of a lady's smile, and it was his purpose wholly to irradiate the earth by means of this wonderful invention. It is nothing new, said I, for most of our sunshine comes from women's smile already. True, answered the inventor, but my machine will secure a constant supply for domestic use, whereas hitherto it has been very precarious. Another person had a scheme for fixing the reflections of objects in a pool of water, and thus taking the most lifelike portraits imaginable, and the same gentleman demonstrated the practicality of giving a permanent dye to ladies' dresses in the gorgeous clouds of sunset. There were at least fifty kinds of perpetual motion, one of which was applicable to the wits of newspaper editors and writers of every description. Professor Espy was here with a tremendous storm in a gum-elastic bag. I could enumerate many more of these utopian inventions, but after all, a more imaginative collection is to be found in the patent office at Washington. Turning from the inventors, we took a more general survey of the inmates of the hall. Many persons were present who were right of entrance, appeared to consist in some crochet of the brain, which so long as it might operate, produced a change in their relation to the actual world. It is singular how very few there are who do not occasionally gain admittance on such a score, either in abstracted musings or momentary thoughts or bright anticipations or vivid remembrances, for even the actual becomes ideal whether in hope or memory, and beguiles the dreamer into the hall of fantasy. Some unfortunates make their whole abode in business here, and contract habits which unfit them for all the real employments of life. Others, but these are few, possess the faculty in their occasional visits of discovering a purer truth than the world call in part among the lights and shadows of these pictured windows. And with all its dangerous influences, we have reason to thank God that there is such a place of refuge from the gloom and chilliness of actual life. Hither may come the prisoner, escaping from his dark and narrow cell and cankerous chain, to breathe free air in this enchanted atmosphere. The sick man leaves his weary pillow, and finds strength to wander hither, through
through his wasted limbs might not support him even to the threshold of his chamber. The exile passes through the Hall of Fantasy to revisit his native soil. The burden of years rolls down from the old man's shoulders the moment that the door uncloses. Mourners leave their heavy sorrows at the entrance, and here rejoin the lost ones whose faces would else be seen no more, until thought shall have become the only fact. It may be said in truth that there is but half a life, the meaner and earthier half, for those who never find their way into the hall. Nor must I fail to mention that in the observatory of the edifice is kept that wonderful perspective glass through which the shepherds of the delectable mountains showed Christian the far-off gleam of the celestial city. The eye of faith still loves to gaze through it. I observe some men here, said I to my friend, who might set up a strong claim to be reckoned among the most real personages of the day. Certainly, he replied, if a man be in advance of his age, he must be content to make his abode in this hall until the lingering generations of his fellow men come up with him. He can find no other shelter in the universe but the fantasies of one day are the deepest realities of the future one. It is difficult to distinguish them apart amid the gorgeous and bewildering light of this hall, rejoined I. The white sunshine of actual life is necessary in order to test them. I am rather apt to doubt both men and their reasonings till I meet them in that truthful medium. Perhaps your faith in the ideal is deeper than you were aware, said my friend. You are at least a democrat, and methinks no scanty share of such faith is essential to the adoption of that creed. Among the characters who have elicited these remarks were most of the noticed reformers of the day, whether in physics, politics, morals, or religion. There is no surer method of arriving at the Hall of Fantasy than to throw oneself into the current of a theory. For whatever landmarks of fact may be set up along the stream, there is a law of nature that impels it thither. And let it be so, for here the wise head and capacious heart may do their work and what is good and true becomes gradually hardened into fact. While error melts away and vanishes among the shadows of the ball, therefore may none who believe and rejoice in the progress of mankind be angry with me because I recognize their apostles and leaders amid the fantastic radiance of those pictured windows. I love and honor such men as well as they. It would be endless to describe the herd of real or self-styled reformers that peopled this place of refuge. They were the representatives of an unquiet period when mankind is seeking to cast off the whole tissue of ancient custom like a tattered garment. 
Many of them had got possession of some crystal fragment of truth, the brightness of which so dazzled them that they could see nothing else in the wide universe. Here were men whose faith had embodied itself in the form of a potato, and others whose long beards had a deep spiritual significance. Here was the abolitionist, brandishing his own idea like an iron flail. In a word, there were a thousand shapes of good and evil, faith and infidelity, wisdom and nonsense, a most incongruous throng. Yet withal, the heart of the stanchest conservative, unless he abjured his fellowship with man, could hardly have helped throbbing in sympathy with the spirit that pervaded these innumerable theorists. It was good for the man of unquickened heart to listen even to their folly. Far down beyond the fathom of the intellect, the soul acknowledged that these varying and conflicting developments of humanity were united in one sentiment. By the individual theory as wild as fancy could make it. Still, the wiser spirit would recognize the struggle of the race after a better and purer life than had yet been realized on earth. My faith revived even while I rejected all their schemes. It could not be that the world should continue forever what it has been. A soil where happiness is so rare, a flower and virtue, so often a blighted fruit, a battlefield where the good principle, with its shield flung above its head, can hardly save itself amid the rush of adverse influences. In the enthusiasm of such thoughts, I gazed through one of the pictured windows, and behold, the whole external world was tinged with the dimly glorious aspect that is peculiar to the Hall of Fantasy, insomuch that it seemed practicable at that very instant to realize some plan for the perfection of mankind. But alas, if reformers would understand the sphere in which their lot is cast, they must cease to look through pictured windows. Yet they not only use this medium, but mistake it for the whitest sunshine. Come, said I to my friend, starting from a very deep reverie. Let us hasten hence, or I shall be tempted to make a theory, after which there is little hope of any man. Come hither then, answered he. Here is one theory that swallows up and annihilates all others. He led me to a distant part of the hall, where a crowd of deeply attentive auditors were assembled round an elderly man of plain honest trustworthy aspect. With an earnestness that bestokened the sincerest faith in his own doctrine, he announced that the destruction of the world was close at hand. It is Father Miller himself, exclaimed I. No less a man, said my friend, and observe how picturesque a contrast between his dogma 
and those of the reformers whom we have just glanced at. They look for the earthly perfection of mankind and are forming schemes which imply that the immortal spirit will be connected with the physical nature for innumerable ages of futurity. On the other hand, here comes good Father Miller, and with one puff of his relentless theory, scatters all their dreams like so many withered leaves upon the blast. It is perhaps the only method of getting mankind out of the various perplexities into which they have fallen, I replied. Yet, I could wish that the world might be permitted to endure until some great moral shall have been evolved. A riddle is propounded. Where is the solution? The Sphinx did not slay herself until her riddle had been guessed. Where is the solution? The Sphinx did not slay herself until her riddle had been guessed. Will it not be so with the world? Now, if it should be burned tomorrow morning, I am at a loss to know what purpose will have been accomplished, or how the universe will be wiser or better for our existence and destruction. We cannot tell what mighty truths may have been embodied in act through the existence of the globe and its inhabitants, rejoined my companion. Perhaps, it may be revealed to us after the fall of the curtain over our catastrophe, or not impossibly, the whole drama in which we are involuntary actors may have been performed for the instruction of another set of spectators. I cannot perceive that our own comprehension of it is at all essential to the matter. At any rate, our view is so ridiculously narrow and superficial, it would be absurd to argue the continuance of the world from the fact that it seems to have existed hitherto in vain. The poor old earth, murmured I, she has faults enough in all conscience, but I cannot hear to have her perish. It is no great matter, said my friend, the happiest of us has been weary of her many a time and oft. I doubt it, answered I, pertinaciously. The root of human nature strikes down deep into this earthly soil, and it is but reluctantly that we submit to be transplanted, even for a higher cultivation in heaven. I query whether the destruction of the earth would gratify any one individual, except perhaps some embarrassed man of business whose notes fall due a day after the day of doom. Then, methought, I heard the expostulating cry of a multitude against the consummation prophesied by Father Miller. The lover wrestled with providence for his foreshadowed bliss. Parents entreated that the earth's span of endurance might be prolonged by some seventy years so that their newborn infant should not be defrauded of his lifetime. A youthful poet murmured because there would be no posterity to recognize the inspiration of his song. 
The reformers, one and all, demanded a few thousand years to test their theories, after which the universe might go to wreck. A mechanician, who was busied with an improvement of the steam engine, asked merely time to perfect his model. A miser insisted that the world's destruction would be a personal wrong to himself unless he should first be permitted to add a specified sum to his enormous heap of gold. A little boy made dolorous inquiry whether the last day would come before Christmas and thus deprive him of his anticipated dainties. In short, nobody seemed satisfied that this mortal scene of things should have its close just now. Yet, it must be confessed, the motives of the crowd for desiring its continuance were mostly so absurd that unless infinite wisdom had been aware of much better reasons, the solid earth must have melted away at once. For my own part, not to speak of a few private and personal ends, I really desired our old mother's prolonged existence for her own dear sake. The poor old earth, I repeated. What I should chiefly regret in her destruction would be that very earthliness which no other sphere or state of existence can renew or compensate. The fragrance of flowers and of new mown hay. The fragrance of the flowers and of new mown hay the genial warmth of sunshine, and the beauty of a sunset among clouds, the comfort and cheerful glow of the fireside, the deliciousness of fruits and of all good cheer, the magnificence of mountains and seas and cataracts, and the softer charm of rural scenery, even the fast-falling snow and the gray atmosphere through which it descends. All these and innumerable other enjoyable things of earth must perish with her. Then, the country frolics, the homely humor, the broad open-mouthed roar of laughter, and which body and soul conjoin so heartily. I feel that no other world Paul show it's anything just like this. As for purely moral enjoyments, the good will find them in every state of being. But where the material and the moral exist together, what is to happen then? And then our mute four-footed friends and the winged songsters of our woods, might it not be lawful to regret them even in the hallowed groves of paradise? You speak like the very spirit of earth, imbued with the scent of freshly turned soil, exclaimed my friend. It is not that I so much object to giving up these enjoyments on my own account, continued I, but I hate to think that they will have been eternally annihilated from the list of joys. Nor need they be, he replied, I see no real force in what you say. Standing in this hall of fantasy, we perceive what even the earth-clogged intellect of man can do in creating 
circumstances which, though we call them shadowy and visionary, are scarcely more so than those that surround us in actual life. Doubt not then that man's disembodied spirit may recreate time and the world for itself, with all their peculiar enjoyments, should there still be human yearnings amid life eternal and infinite? But I doubt whether we shall be inclined to play such a poor scene over again. Oh, you are ungrateful to our Mother Earth, rejoined I. Come what may, I never will forget her. Neither will it satisfy me to have her exist merely in idea. I want her great round solid self to endure interminably and still be peopled with the kindly race of man whom I uphold to be much better than he thinks himself. Nevertheless, I confide the whole matter to providence and shall endeavor so to live that the world may come to an end at any moment without leaving me at a loss to find foothold somewhere else. It is an excellent resolve, said my companion, looking at his watch. But come, it is dinner hour. Will you partake of my vegetable diet? I think so matter-of-fact as an invitation to dinner. Even when the fare was to be nothing more substantial than vegetables and fruit, compelled us forthwith to remove from the Hall of Fantasy. As we passed out of the portal, we met the spirits of several persons who had been sent thither in magnetic sleep. I looked back among the sculptured pillars and at the transformations of the gleaming fountain, and almost desired that the whole of life might be spent in that visionary scene where the actual world, with its hard angles, should never rub against me and only be viewed through the medium of pictured windows. But for those who waste all their days in the Hall of Fantasy, good Father Miller's prophecy is already accomplished, and the solid earth has come to an untimely end. Let us be content, therefore, with merely an occasional visit for the sake of spiritualizing the grossness of this actual life and prefiguring to ourselves a state in which the idea shall be all in all. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you found the show helpful and want to make sure it's around for others to enjoy, please go to KnoxBedtimeStories.com and click the Patreon button. There are various rewards and it ensures that the show will be here every Monday for a long time to come. I wish you all a good night's sleep and a happy peaceful life. May the best of your todays be the worst of your tomorrows. Good night.